1: first property 8 years, no capital growth, nothing just sat there and then bang, you know, we, we got we got some growth and then nothing again, then you got some growth. So, I still got that property actually and uh, we've I've seen it once, you know, I've seen that property once in almost, um, almost 20 years. It's pretty funny.
0: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Taran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with the director of buyer's agency search party property, Julian Kosagara. Discover how he got into property from a successful career in sales and tourism working in 5-star hotels. We'll also hear about his first investment property that he held onto where there was no capital growth for 8 years. With over 20 years' experience in the property investing industry, Kusagara is involved in many aspects of the business as a buyer's agent and business partner.
1: And I'm a partner in a in a buyer's agency, a buyer's advocacy um, business called Search Party Property. Uh, we're based in Sydney, but uh, we do buy property mainly in the east coast of Australia big focus on Brisbane for the last few years and uh, definitely doing very well at the moment and obviously Sydney is where I live and my business partner Luke Maroney um, and we also have done quite a lot in Victoria probably not so much at the moment but uh, definitely see that bouncing back.
0: He's such a great guy I've heard so many great stories behind what he's achieved for his clients as well so it's great to be part of that business.
1: Yeah no he's a good guy and uh, funny enough we've known each other for a very long time Uh Going back to another life, when I finished uh, school and uni, I studied tourism marketing and, and I worked in a travel com- big travel company at the time and uh, Luke came in there, I think I must have been in my early 20s and we just became a manager or supervisor of a team and Luke came in as this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I think 18-year-old, must have just finished HSC and uh, yes, yeah, so we actually met way back then so, um, you know, I guess you have those gaps in time of life and he went overseas to work and I travelled overseas and, and then just kept bouncing into each other over, over time. And actually, I got him my job at another company I worked for uh, many years, 10 years later. Um, and then uh, we bumped into each other again. He was starting a new company called First Time Property Investment um, where he's mentoring investors. And that was his first sort of foray into um, business. Um, so I think he reached out then and we had a couple of, couple of chats and had lunch over sushi one day and realized that we've got um, – have a lot more in common than just our past around you know obviously just love talking about property and and our journeys and then uh, we used to meet up funny enough every every second week and give blood uh, or plasma in fact at the red cross and that was our time to spend an hour or two together every every fortnight on a tuesday morning so that's kind of how we developed uh, our friendship again and here we are now as business partners
0: when you first met luke at the beginning you know at the first company that you worked in was he sort of under your wing as- yeah
1: he was like at, at the general in, entry level of, of the company uh i don't think he reported to me i was looking after a different business unit you know, in the business but definitely part of the greater unit that i was probably 100 people in our in that business area that i was in and luke was definitely part of that but yeah you know it was a very social business uh we we're all young we're now early 20s, so yeah, obviously your Friday nights are pretty hectic together. And, uh, you know, I guess Luke was probably just breaking out of uh, of school and, you know, getting into the big bad world and seeing how things happen in the big city and, uh, yeah, enjoying that time of, uh, you know, socialising and drinking and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a fun, definitely a fun time. And, you know, a lot of those friendships are still strong, which is, which is really, really, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that, you know, those friendships have, have stood that long.
0: Used to the duties required in a managerial or leadership role, Kersagara does not only use this mentality in a professional capacity but also when it is needed at home while raising his daughters.
1: A typical day starts pretty early, normally get up at around 5.30 most mornings and uh, do a bit of exercise, either go to the gym or uh, have a home gym where I do some uh, some treadmill work, uh, then uh, look after two teenage girls, so it's hard to get them out of bed and get ready for school. So need to get them out of the house by about 7.30. So, uh, yeah, they get a bit spoiled, get their breakfast made and uh, make their lunch and then uh, get them to the bus stop. And uh, my wife and I might alternate that depending on who's going to an office or not. Um, and then, yeah, normally get into work, sort of start my day and think about work around seven thirty eight 8 um, o'clock. Could be either setting up, setting myself up for success for the day, thinking about the things to do. Um, could be getting on, on, on calls straight away to do other, you know, fun things like today, what we're doing together, Tyrone, or it could be, um, you know, we do discovery calls or strategy calls with clients. Um, so really getting to that quite early. And, yeah, pretty much uh, that's the day through that. So I kind of break it down looking after our team. We've got some um, team members um, in Sydney, uh, actually overseas as well in the Philippines um and, so, and a couple in brisbane as well so there's a bit of team interaction and um you know what we call a work in progress meetings just to touch base and see what everyone's up to and uh yeah talk to luke most days just to see what we're kind of you know we kind of demarcate where what we're doing and uh yeah it's just uh, it's a pretty hectic day it doesn't normally end till quite late at night but uh you know when you love what you're doing right as we it's a classical cliche but um time doesn't really really matter
0: sometimes i get to the end of the day and go wow you know i, I feel like i've done a lot but i can't believe how quick it's gone it's just like <laughs> a snap and then like day has <laughs> gone oh i like, wish i had more time because there's just so much great things to do
1: yeah particularly i mean yeah, this, sometimes i feel this this headphone is on my head permanently and it uh it's part of my my look and feel nowadays it's like a baseball cap but um yeah and like you said you you know you drop the kids at school at seven thirty, or drop them at the bus stop and um like you said, next thing you look at your watch and it's 4 o'clock and you've got to go pick them up from the uh, the bus stop or the train station again like, geez, where did that uh, eight hours just go?
0: <laughs> Although Kusagawa grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, he was born overseas. With the hopes of making a better life for their children, Kursagara's parents made a decision to move.
1: I guess like a lot of migrants in the early 70s. Uh, had two options one was to go to canada and or come to australia which is the the great land uh, promised land as they called it and uh my mum's sister was already here so dad came to australia and had a look around and got a job straight away he was working in the oil sector um as in an administration role uh, purchasing or what we call procurement today um so yeah he got a job straight away and so brought us brought the family three young kids to australia and uh left their families and everything behind so typical migrant story but you know Worked really hard, two jobs, um, educated themselves further because their their um, degrees weren't recognised in Australia, which obviously in today's world, anyone coming out of India are highly recognised, but back then it wasn't so. Um, you know, very white Australia, obviously early 70s. I remember being the only coloured kid in school right through almost to towards high school, really, from memory. And um, so, you know, I know it's a buzzword at the moment, so yeah, obviously very racist upbringing, but... At that time, you don't you don't react because you just got to take it on the chin, and um, and it makes you stronger. And you know, it probably drove me harder in certain things, particularly in sport, which I enjoyed and loved and was quite good at. Um, when those sort of things came up during a game or whatever, else it probably motivated me to to really get my aggression up and and, and focus harder on what I was doing. So, um, and that was in sorry in the, in the western suburbs of Sydney, in an area called St Mary's, and then we moved from there. Probably just before high school, before I went to high school and moved to a a little place no one really knows called uh, King's Langley, which is in the hills area.
0: Behind where I live, actually, not far.
1: Yeah, that's right. Not too far away. So, yeah, that was a and went to school there and uh, yeah, you know, public school, um, but didn't know anything better. Parents were, you know, did as much as they could, always um, bought a house paid it off, bought a house, paid it off, typical story, didn't leverage and all the things that you, you and I are going to talk about, property and, and strategies that we talk about today in property investing. But um, I guess that was the nature of things back then. They had high interest rates, you know, um, a typical story where, the, you know, looking after your families back, back at home, you know, paying off and looking after their lifestyles as well, sending money all over the place. I, I definitely remember... Um, you know, charitable donations regularly with mum and dad as a kid always signing checks off and wondering why they're giving money away to everyone when all I wanted was a new cricket bat and new football shoes or something like that but uh, I guess that's not until we become adults that we appreciate what that all means now.
0: Although his parents weren't particularly wealthy, they were always grateful for what they did have and found it especially important to give to others who had less than themselves. They would instill this compassion in their children from a young age.
1: Yeah, I think I remember a quote, you know, but they once when I was a kid asking that question about, you know, can I have some money to get a a new cricket bat or something silly like that? And, uh, you know, I think they said to me that you've always got to give and help people who are less fortunate than yourselves. And even though we weren't, you know, fortunate in driving fancy cars or big houses or going international holidays, we just felt fortunate we had a roof, we had always had food and we always had good clothes and um enough clothes I should say for, you know, school and things. I didn't have any like my kids today and I didn't I don't I can't even remember when I had my first Nike shoes or anything like that. It was always the, the Dunlop volleys or <laughs> whatever we wore back then and Slazenger and things like that. Um yeah, but it was enough, right? Because we were very, very close. Um very we were a very social family. So we always had Every weekend, we're always going out to big parties, you know, I guess being part of an Indian community as well, you're always out there and uh, enjoying enjoying the food and the fun and the festivities. Um, so, yeah, it was always a, quite a social upbringing. So, it was uh, definitely um, something I look back to very fondly.
0: When his family made the big move from India to Australia, it was a difficult transition to say the least. This was not only because his parents were coming to a new country with no jobs and no money. But they also had to bring along their three children under the age of five.
1: I think I just turned three or just under, just around three, coming at three, yeah. So uh, I'm now... Yeah, yeah. My younger sister was I think eighteen months. there's a couple of years different between us. So and then I had a I have an older sister as well who was five. I think she had a fifth birthday before we left. So yeah, so there were three, you no, know, three kids under five basically coming to a new country with no job, no money, because obviously everything they had, had to had to be left overseas. So they couldn't, you know, bring the money with them at that back in those days. So um yeah. Um, yeah. and mum and dad had a very affluent life back back there. It was a um, things are going really well for them, but um, you know, they make these sacrifices for the, the good of their children. And I guess um, where they were living at the time, where they ended up because of work um, in, in, in Karachi, you know, things started to change there due to, you know, new, obviously partition and then um, some, you know, religious changes in, in the country. And um, um, so I guess they figured it was a, a better place to bring up our, our, the children in, in, in Australia.
0: With parents who always strive to offer a better life for their family, Kusagara learned about the importance of achieving whatever it is that you want in life. Now, after a devastating turn of events, this was made all the more clear.
1: So, yeah, so dad was more at administration, um, management sort of roles. At, uh, he worked for Burma Shell, a big oil company, um, and then came and worked for Castrol and basically worked two jobs all his life, right? Back in those days, so I got a to- yeah so then he was working in, in castrol here in australia as a purchasing um, manager sort of heading up the purchasing and buying area um so, you know buying big oil tins and all things like that for for the company and then mum was um she did a degree in teaching but then came to australia and got into more administration roles and worked for the public service and then you yeah, know worked her way up through there and then she started to study law but then unfortunately got quite ill in her late 40s and with motor neurone and uh yeah, I thought she passed away, you know, 3-4 years later so yeah, didn't get to achieve I guess all her dreams and goals.
0: Although Kusogaro admits that he didn't get the best results after finishing high school, he was determined and was adamant about getting a job following his parents' hard working footsteps.
1: A lot of kids probably enjoyed or had dreams of uh, playing sport at, at a high level which was never really going to happen but you know, you, you, like to, you like to have those dreams. Um, and, you know, the usual things that comes into the mix of the teenage boy, uh, other influences. Um, and then went to, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I actually studied accounting for two years um, because, you know, you're, you're Indian. You should become an accountant.
0: Well, I know. It's either engineer or accountant.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely didn't have the intelligence to become a doctor. Um, so... Yeah, I did accounting for two years, and funny enough, um, realized I had a personality, so I couldn't really be an accountant. So I, uh, I left that after two years. And um, but what I did enjoy was the business side of that that um, that course and degree, you know, around, uh, I was, you know, which made sense. I was good at I did three in economics at school and did very well at that. It's about the only subject I did really well at, and so it kind of made sense, right? Once you realize and you start studying that, I liked marketing. I liked business, I like commerce, I like economics, I like talking about companies and how they work and the machinations of building businesses and and uh, rather than studying p ls day in, day out. So, yeah, so then I left and I didn't really know what to do. It was actually at that recessionary time in the early 90s, the recession we had to have under Paul Keating, interest rates were high.
0: Yeah, something like 20%, wasn't it? Some crazy, yeah.
1: That's why they couldn't leverage, right? They had to buy the house, pay it off somehow. Um, so so yes, I remember just going to the city for interviews, trying to get, maybe I thought, maybe I could, maybe I'll try to keep doing accounting. But I said to my dad, you know, obviously being a ethnic background, you know, you you can't just stay at home. You've got to work, son. And so I went in, um, I always had part-time jobs always, but just, you know, full-time work. So I went into the city and every day in a suit and tried to knock on doors and look for a job. And, um, bumped into someone actually, I met at a wedding a, a month or so earlier. And she said, what are you up to? I said, um, not much, just looking for work because I'm going to pause um, my accounting degree at the moment. And, um, yeah, so then I joined that, as I mentioned at the outset about Luke, uh, this travel company as a courier, like the mailboy, <laughs> running around the city dropping tickets off. Back in the old days, a ticket was actually a paper ticket, not a uh, uh, something on the internet, not an app. <laughs> so I ran around delivering this company. I worked with the largest ticket wholesaler in the country. It's a big company called Concord, and, um yeah, did that ran around the city, and uh, I just got I was quite, I'm quite a nosy, inquisitive sort of person, and which probably made sense uh, later in my career and certain roles I went into. But I just started reading everything that I was dropping the mail off to all the executives in the business. <laughs> I'd read the the journals and the papers, nothing confidential, just you know all the, uh, the local local um, industry rags and. And got interested in it, so I thought, Oh, actually, why don't I go and study tourism and you know, study that sort of tourism marketing angle because I enjoyed the company? So, um, that's what I did, yes. Yeah. So and I went part time three nights a week at uh, out at the Ultimo at UTS and um, a tourism marketing uh, degree, yeah.
0: At one point during the five and a half years that Kursagara spent working at Concord. He was given an exciting opportunity when being accepted into a prestigious training management program. Just
1: quite interesting because I think the four or five people on that program are all either sons of someone, or you know their dad was the head of Qantas or the head of Ansett and um, had a little bit of influence. Maybe I'm not sure. They, not saying they didn't deserve the roles. It just uh, had had a little bit of influence. So yeah, for me to get that opportunity and be asked to be put on this program was exciting. And um, so that way I was moved around the business to get to know. A few of the areas and one of the areas i went into i think the second uh, tranche of the program was in sales and i always i always thought sales guys always had to be flamboyant and really out there and uh because uh, that's what i saw from a lot of sales people but i realized that um it kind of worked for me i i'm probably not the flamboyant type and i'm actually uh, get nervous, and I go into, into in meeting new companies or going to businesses. But uh, I think I'm inquisitive. As I mentioned, I ask a lot of questions, and um, probably a pretty good listener. So I think that helps. Being in sales, if people liked, like, and trust you, they they like to work with you, which has probably resonated then from that age all the way through my career. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm very similar to you, I have to admit, because I'm I, I'm quite inquisitive. I ask a lot of questions and I, I try my best to listen as much as possible to you know see what it is and there are two, I think as you said, two sides of it. There can be people who are outgoing and great for sales, you know, those are the really I guess um, outgoing type of personalities and then there are the ones who will sit there and just listen but they actually have a process that they follow and um, I was reading a book recently by, by a guy called Matthew Pollard about the introvert's edge and those people he are saying that he did a study on seem to actually perform exceptionally well in sales because they spend a lot of time just listening and because they're introverts, they don't like to be talking Um they, the people actually who are doing the talking tend to go, okay, you know, because you're, you're actually listening and understand what we want, we actually want to work with you. So, you know, there's, there's all these different ways of looking at how sales can actually work and be beneficial for, you know, the different types of personalities. And
1: You know, sales theories have changed and, and developed and uh, the machinations of sales have moved around. So if you're selling pens or encyclopedias and door-to-door, then you have to have a very different type of uh, personality to do that and very highly geared and motivated. Um So I guess the buzzword that came through, particularly over the SaaS software as a sales as a service uh, um you know, in the last 20 years is what they derived derived a term of consultative selling. So that's where you're consulting and you're talking and you're asking questions and what are the problems I need to solve for you. So, you know, again, like you said, you're well-trained and versed to ask those type of questions. And, you know, big, huge companies put you through, you know, huge amounts of training on how to speak in a certain way and the formula of selling their product. And it's generally in the software industry and sector uh, where you get that consultative selling process.
0: After completing the management training program, Kusagara began to apply those skills gained within the company. However, his career soon started to fast forward and he began weighing up his options.
1: And maybe 24 or so at that stage and felt like I I've kind of, I don't know, maybe outgrown this company into the where I wanted to head. And, you know, the usual case, I don't think I did a, a formal interview, I don't know, well into my 30s, but uh, I, uh, you know, someone, uh, an airline called me, uh, an airline that I used to work with a bit in my in that role, Malaysia Airlines, and the sales manager rang up and said, hey, do you want to have a coffee? Said, yeah, sure, I'll have a coffee and uh, or lunch or something like that and went and did that and uh, as that turned out to be a bit of a job opportunity and he wanted a, an assistant sales manager. So I went into, So I went for a couple of interviews there and got that job. Um kind of a formality. I think he picked me, but I started to go through the HR side of things. And that was a, a really big turning curve, you know, big airline, very formal, um, shiny offices and, you know, flying around Asia all the time You know, going to Malaysia all the time was fun. And I was young and single and obviously had a lot of fun doing that. Um, but as a, in my management training and um, becoming a better leader, was a, it was a real growth for me there. Um, I came in and everyone in that, oh, like I said, 24, 25, everyone in that company was, um, all the other sales reps uh, were in their, well into their 30s, some into their 50s. And this young guy comes in and says, uh, I'm now your supervisor. So I reported into the sales manager and I was there. And that didn't go down well. And, um, but you know that that taught me some skills about being resilient and you know having to be strong and say, well, this is the way it is. But you know, gaining their trust, I guess, so they know who is this guy. But I guess I learned to gain trust by by leading by example, working hard, and um, doing the right things, talking to people individually, getting to know their story and what makes them tick. And everyone's individual, right? Not everyone works the same way. So I, I guess again that inquisitive mindset and liking people, enjoying enjoying people's company, helped me. Uh, understand people and understand what they needed to work well with me and vice versa. So it's not that uh, wooden stick type of uh, management style that was probably was sort of coming out the back of back in those days. Um, it was more about working, understanding people and uh, working together as a team. know, I mean, now that we've got the buzzwords like collaborative and uh, um, all these type of words that are, um, you know, pivoting like we heard last year. So <laughs> And it was just getting to know people and we didn't use buzzwords It was just really treating people as individuals and um, getting to understand how they want to work best and everyone's a bit different some one lady was a mother who really wanted to work really hard between nine to nine to three or nine to four and then to go pick up a son single mum, and that's okay she got her work done she had a great sales um record and um her reports up to scratch and up to date so and there was other people who work differently you like to have the longer hours in the office and Coming a bit later, we'll work a bit later and even that's okay because ultimately, we are judged upon um, what we deliver.
0: It would be a little while longer before Kusagawa would buy his first investment property. After a few changes in his career and with a slight pay rise, he was finally in the right position to take that step.
1: Yeah, so once I went through the travel sector, did um, Malaysia Airlines, went to work for another hotel and then I went into a hotel business, um, worked for La Hotels, a major five-star hotel company out of Hong Kong again a lot of traveling to asia and then um finally my last hotel job was at four seasons hotel which is uh in the city and the hotel business has really probably developed that professional side of me because uh i was probably a little bit loose you know in industries where you could get away with it back then there wasn't as much uh scrutiny around uh databases and reporting and and technology wasn't quite there yet whereas Fiesta hotels it was really about um you know very heavily governed on kpis and achieving sales calls and targets um but also just professional you know you go into work every single day looking a million dollars in your black suit and your and your white shirt and um it almost became a competition to outdo each other in the sales team on how we over deliver to our clients so when a client comes in to look at a hotel room it sounds pretty boring but they are going to then buy to a, a conference or they're going to put their, you know, Deloitte, one of my clients would bring in, you know, 6,000 of their 6,000 room nights would come and stay in a hotel with their traveling employees and uh, executives. So you'd want to put on a bit of a show. So, you know, it's always fun to outdo it and making sure the room's set up, making sure you had their logo on the um on the laptop and they walked in all the lights are on we know open up the curtains it was the opera house staring right at them making sure you don't get a room that looked at the wrong side of george street and then they're really small things but it all adds up making sure you bump into the general manager by accident but you planned it right you've told him i'm coming in at this time can you please walk through the lobby and meet my client because again it general managers and hotels have a big you know a, a big uh hold a lot of power and a lot of mystique and uh um it was good to have them introduce them to my clients and then you go into the restaurant and then you make sure the head chef comes out and he delivers a beautiful meal you know with their logo on on the pastry that the dessert and out of honey and wax and so you know everything you did was to outdo um your client and make sure you give them the best experience so that was something i really really took me a while to warm up to because it wasn't normal natural for me but i uh it's definitely another building block in my in my makeup as a as a professional that really helped me, so yeah, left that and then sorry, what I was getting on to you said when I bought my first property then I went into into marketing loyalty marketing specifically with an Australian company where we rang the ran the bank's loyalty program so more stress strategy consultative sales there um, but that's when I bought my first property, so I moved from uh, hotels into um into that loyalty company and got a you know a nice kicker pay rise from that to hotels great and glamorous and lo- lovely travel to be in faster hotels, but didn't pay as well. So um, moved into the corp into the true sort of enterprise corporate world and yeah had a nice kick to my pay pay rise and uh yeah thought okay time to invest in property. So I went classical get an introduction to someone, nice glossy salesman and told me about this beautiful development, a multiplex development in, in Newtown, Erskineville, um, which I still have so I was 30, I think at that stage.
0: He describes what the property looked like and what was being sold to him.
1: Yeah, it was a one one bedroom apartment. So again, classical story: you buy that, it's got overheads, it's got a lift, it's got tennis courts and swimming pools. So something I would never sell to a client today, but that's my class. And that's, I think most people have that classical story where you get sold to or something. And we bought that. Um, and at that stage, I was with a, my a partner, a girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And uh, so we ended up buying that together in the end because um we put both our names together to leverage the loan uh my uh wife at that time my wife had you know, girlfriend at that time wife I had a had a uh, a property as well in in roselle so we were able to leverage that as well to, to assist and um, yeah classical story didn't didn't move for eight years and you now, quite often i hear people say to me oh but Sydney's this or Melbourne's that or Brisbane's this. And that said, if you look over a 30-year graph, which we always share with our clients, everything kind of doesn't always move like a beautiful line, right? We'd love to say property moves 5% every year. It does on average, potentially, in most cities, good cities, but uh, it doesn't. it's not a beautiful linear graph, is it? So it's normally a little bit rough. You get the spikes that we've had in Sydney in, say, 17, the most recent one, and then we tend to to plateau out for a while. It doesn't necessarily drop. Um, uh, tends to plateau. And so, yeah, for that first property, eight years, no capital growth, nothing just sat there. And then bang, you know, we, we got, we got some growth and then nothing again. Then it got some growth. So I still got that property actually. And, uh, we've, I've seen it once, you know, I've seen that property once in almost, um, almost 20 years. It's pretty funny. But you you don't need to. You have property managers and they look after it for you. They're professionals and we're busy professionals with children. We don't have time to inspect and look after the properties and change washers and dishwashers and things like that. We leave it to the professionals to do. So, um, yeah, so that was my first foray into property investing, a a high-rise apartment.
0: Although this first property purchase now has positive cash flow, it definitely wasn't a walk in the park to begin with, but it certainly has taught Kusagara a lot and has helped him in many ways with his future property endeavours.
1: Back in those days it was the classical negative gearing uh, theories that were, were being flaunted and, and made kind of sense if you're earning good money, which my um yeah, my wife and I were at that time. And um, you know, so negative gear and the tax man will help you. Uh, and then today the strategy is more reversed, right? And I think strategies move based on the market factors and back then the market factor was an interest rate that was much higher than it is today um and Sydney prices were were beginning to move that sort of high-rise apartment really started becoming in vogue and you can see those areas started to grow around that area i mean that development is actually a very solid development and multiplex being a great Australian builder um you know it has standard test of time but we've had a lot of Especially recently, right? The last couple of years, some you know, interesting stories around high-rise apartments and building defects, as the uh, the classical term that we've heard recently. So, um, yeah. So over that time, then it started to get some capital growth. We took a little bit of money out of it over time too to leverage that and, and buy other properties. Um, but then, yeah, as as that started to to taper out and get that capital growth, it, it turned positive and now it, it does very well. It has never been untenanted not for one day. We, being close to the RPA Hospital, we tend to get good professional people. Um, it's a good starting sort of. You know, it's one bedroom, but it's a good size, got balcony, everything like that, and it's got all the amenities. Right near Newtown Station, um, right at that crossroad of uh, St Peters and uh, Princess Highway and, and King Street, so it's a real buzz area for young professionals. And we, I think, majority of the times we've had doctors, nurses, and and sort of school teachers or people like that coming through. And renting that property for long periods of time so yeah it's been so in that way it's been a it's been a success but it did take some time to to get moving yeah
0: well that's the thing. Like I, I remember going back more than a decade ago, Redfern. I always could not believe Redfern was gonna be a, a popular area and high demand area. I just thought it was you know, if you if you and I remember it was very run down, it was sort of in almost like not the slums, but like just very kind of yeah, it's just almost like government housing type of area, which it was for a period of time.
1: It was. Yeah. It was a bit scary. I mean great you wouldn't want to enter, go through there at night and things like that. You were advised not to and you know, stay stay away. Um, yeah, we saw that happen to to Glebe as well in a way, although Glebe has still got um, you know some areas there which is great that the government does this for our community with housing commission and, and areas like that. Roselle, where we lived in Roselle had housing commission as well, which is which is wonderful. Um but back, back, you're talking 20 years ago, yeah, the elements were a little bit rough and it was a bit difficult, but uh, gentrification kicks in um, and gentrifies these areas and the properties start to move upwards. And we've seen that throughout that inner west area, as you know, you talk about Redfern, which did that, but then we go out on that train line out towards, you know, you you started had the Stanmore, you went to Petersham and it started moving out and out and out, Lewisham, and, and now it's gone as far as Marrickville is so cool and trendy and, and now it's young families throughout Marriottville, whereas, you know, going back when we were probably coming through, um, it was very much a, well, I'm sure I'm a generation older than you, but it was very much, you know, an ethnic area.
0: Kursagara shares some of the lessons he's learnt over the years and reveals the turning point in his life and career he came across whilst working in India.
1: Fortunately, we haven't lost our shirt over anything, but, you know, you learn through these. And again, as much as I think I mentioned about, trust and you know something my wife and i are big on and you get to trust people or you get to know them and uh unfortunately there's we you know i guess the buzzword in our industry spruikers and they're out there and uh they put on a really good tap dance and uh you a lot of people get sucked in i just heard a story yesterday another guy you know bought two two properties of someone and what they tend to do is sell their own developments and uh but also uh, moonlight as a property strategist and obviously the strategy is to send their own sell their own developments which then uh Unfortunately, doesn't always work out for the buyer. But my, I guess, the story probably comes to mind would be that I came. My wife and I were uh, fortunate enough through that marketing company we worked for to uh, be selected to go and um, set up a business in India. So, sort of going back in time, went back to uh, India um, and lived in Bombay, Mumbai, for uh, three and a half years, which is you know, a turning point in our life as careers, but also personal lives. Just uh, you know, teaching us a lot about ourselves and Again, going back to that word about charity and be grateful for what we have. Um, so, that was a great time for us.
0: With great success, Kusagara shares with us the next stage in their property journey and what happens next.
1: Um, came back and obviously did quite well. The company supported us very well. Um, our house, our home that I live in here was rented out for all that time. Um, we were um, well paid. We had all our accommodation. We had drivers. We had all the things that you, you get when you're an expat overseas in Asia. And so, yeah, we came back and, and had done quite well out of that uh, that period away from from Australia. And so then we thought, okay, well, let's um let's go back into the property game. And we liked the property game. Uh, reason being is, let's go uh, not a property story, but we got burnt like millions of others in 2008 by the the, the beautiful acronym of GFC and. And again, that was our classical—you know—let's put lots of money into the share market and let's leverage that with some margin funding, and we put dump in all this money, and so okay, we're going to head head to India now and make some more money, and you know, get caught up in all that uh, things that aren't really that important to to, to life. But uh, we we did, you know, admittedly get caught up in that uh, that world of uh, you know reaching a certain level in our careers where we started really doing well. Um, and lost all that money in the you know i remember getting to india and within a couple of weeks we had a letter from the bank saying oh, we're calling back that margin loan but, but we just we just paid for it yeah unfortunately it crashed and it was a property trust and it crashed and uh but you know that wasn't exclusive to us was it it wasn't that it was a bad investment because that was wiped out the whole of uh, the financial world basically so yeah so we didn't really invest over that period we, you know we just consolidated what we did in india savings everything else sent money back home every every month and then said okay Back into property, got got caught up with the, a company, um, um, and you know, g- gave us the classical dream about retiring and and become rich and all these type of things. So we we were busy professionals, right? We didn't really have time to to go around looking at houses and and trying to select them. So I'm and we were consultants, so we're very very. Um, Um, used to paying a consultant for their expertise because companies paid the businesses we worked in a lot of money for our expertise in loyalty and marketing and things like that so yeah so it made sense to use a buyer's agent to find property for us Um, you know still something that wasn't used by everyone but it made total sense for us so we went deep went fast we said yep we bought four we had four or five properties in one year
0: In this short space of time, purchasing 5 properties with a buyer's agent, Kusagara discovered a big lesson that he is reminded of every day.
1: We were very attracted to the banks, high income earners, very big um, um, equity in our home um because we're able to build a lot of equity Oh, there's a bit of growth over that period while we're away after the gfc the prices went up a little bit in uh, property so you know we had all the all ticked all the boxes for the banks and um went fast and went hard and bought properties and a lot of them were house and land packages um a couple were regional but most of them were uh, brisbane and yeah mainly brisbane at that time and you know so now again time heals all wounds they're okay but back then I didn't realize that whole area is highly commissioned geared um, how that all works and now I understand cause I'm in it and so we keep right away from it but you know it, it was a learning so the learning there would be that we wouldn't trust someone so implicitly without doing some research ourselves um, maybe take a deep breath so a lot of times with our clients we say hey let's just take our time one at a time you know we have we have three pillars which is low-risk positive cash flow and potential for growth. And so to us low risk is important. So when someone came to us the other day said, let's go, let's buy two, we're like, no, no, no. we're gonna buy one at a time. And we get that right. And then but but I've got the equity, I've got the money. I said, that's okay. There's no rush. Or you know, one client, especially during COVID period last year, was my job's a little bit shaky. I said, okay, we're not buying. But what do you mean? I've got the I've got the approval. I said, no, we're gonna wait. And, you know, I think people get shocked that we do that but that's just the way Luke and I like to work and, you know, we really do want to do the best for our clients and best for them individually. And, uh, yes, we could easily have taken that money and bought some property and made some cash but um, we know long-term it's going gonna, it's gonna to be in our benefit and we're seeing that now the business is really doing well.
0: He reveals the moment it all clicked into place for him and what made him realize property was his future.
1: Quite often I'll say it's not only a game of property it's not about finding you know a lot of guys come to us or or couples and we want a unicorn it's like well you know if they existed we'd all have one right so uh um you know we have to try to take that seriously but also you know dampen a little bit their enthusiasm that unicorns don't exist and um we will definitely find you a very good property deal and we'll show you that through our data-led research but um that's something we have to uh, focus on. So, leveraging the bank—it's a game of finance, not really a game of property. So, if when the banks, like now, are uh, giving us uh, good leverage to, to to borrow, the capacities that they're borrowing. Yes, they're still a bit tight. they you know back in the day when I said I bought five properties, there's no way I could do that today. I, to be honest, I don't recall even signing too many loan documents, but we got five loans somehow. So, uh, you know, will not spread that gospel too high. But I think we all know what happened because the Royal Commission outed mm-hmm. all that out and. Um, and unfortunately, no, that's that's that happens in all industries, and it'll probably still happen in banks because no one really got in trouble for it, right? So, um, so yeah, when the banks are offering us money, particularly at this rate, um, and we're seeing it in the markets getting a bit hot now. Um, it's not a bad time to invest your money because you live in the bank at 1%. Well, uh, you, you know, put charges on top of that. The bank charge you for holding your money. The next thing you know, you don't have a lot to show for it. So, I think leverage is important and, and it doesn't matter if it's shares or property or whatever you decide to move into, but leveraging is, is important. So, I think the hard moment to be leveraging. So, when the banks are offering money and we're in the right position to take money. So, right now, I'm not because we're in a new business. So, you need to have a few years of um, of um, returns, as you know. Um, although, in then saying that, we've got very very strong equity positioning, and I've also got a wife, you know, in a very good corporate job. So we probably wouldn't have an issue if that was the case. Um, the other thing is, I guess it's that whole positive cash flow and looking at areas for growth. So if you're finding the right areas for growth, um, doing your research on the on the um, on the metrics that bring growth, so jobs. And it's just, there's not one or two factors. It's an overlay of all these extra different data from ABS to jobs to infrastructure to investment to migration to domestic migration, like what's happening in Brisbane, a Sunshine Coast went through the roof, not because of international migration, because of the migration that's coming out of Victoria predominantly. So, you know, a lot of that, you just got to overlay that data and overlay that data and use that. It, it's not, it's not. 100% correct. No one can ever, well, a lot of people unfortunately do say, guarantee you growth, but no one can guarantee growth because um, anyone who said that didn't didn't predict COVID, right, last year. So I think that's the best, most recent um, um, event that we can point to and say, hey, be careful what you believe because, you know, no one predicted what happened last year. So I think, yeah, just that overlay of data. Um, so for me, it would be leveraging the bank, understanding the research that you like you said like you can do now it's online a lot of it's free we pay a lot of money for subscriptions to um, very detailed data but you don't not everyone needs to do that you can you can really do it do it yourself and at least get a very good idea and be educated on, on things that like, particularly unadulterated or unbiased um, data right where it's not someone trying to push you towards a t- particular area. For a particular product, if something's just a pure data source not overlaying by come and invest in Queensland or come and invest in New South Wales, um, I think those data can be taken as, as, you know, very good influences towards um, towards a property purchase. And a third one would be, the aha moment would be to manufacture growth. So that could be through granny flat. That could be through minor minor renovation. I'm not into big renovations. I'm not I'm not into developments and things like that at this stage. I mean, I've, I've uh, like I said, bought land and, and build properties, but I haven't developed townhouses and apartments and things like that. And maybe I'll do it in the future. I know Luke's very heavily involved in a couple of development groups, so we'll probably you know tick tac and learn from each other on that somehow, and we'll probably do something in the future together. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, for me, it's more about uh, understanding those metrics and. Um, Using that to help us, um, you know, grow grow for ourselves and also more importantly, put together an individual strategy for each of our clients.
0: I love what you've said about that. You know, those, those three key points are very important and, and I mean, I might just add to it is, you know, because there's so many great people out there like yourself, you know, tap into that resource as well because you combine all that, I think you'll be very well armed in looking at getting investments especially if you're doing it for a long-term build. I
1: think it's, it's not rocket science, you know, we try to keep it simple and we do a lot of mentoring I've got a couple of young clients coming through at the moment who. uh you know, their first property and, I, and we love that. they Luke and I love that these teenage boys, 19, 20-year-olds, uh, finish up their apprenticeships and want to get into property. And we're like, yeah, well, let us help you get your first one, but we're going to educate you through the process. We're going to document it for you. We're going to mentor you through. You know, Luke's got a, a training and and, and um, qualifications in, in training and mentorship, and we've designed a course around it. Um, as you remember from the beginning of this conversation, the first business he set up was called First Time Property Investing. But... What that, what that business didn't have at the end was everyone, once he went through the course with them, they said, okay, I need to buy a property now. Can you help me? And so that's when he probably went, ah, oh, the aha moment is I need to also buy them a property as well, not just uh, help them educate them because he thought once they're educated they go and buy it themselves but people still are busy. They don't have time. And so when people said, you know, uh, a client yesterday, uh, very busy um, with the technology sector, earns very good money, it's going to probably spend close to a million dollars on a property, but can you help me renovate that, do the pest and building? Can you get a decking put in there? Can you rip the carpets up? And so we don't, we're don't, we not carpenters or experts in that, but we have connections. We have teams of people who will manage that for them and get that done for them. So you know, they don't have time to go up to Brisbane every weekend and, and pay to rip carpets up. So it just doesn't make sense. So um, we know we can give them, be that one-stop shop for a lot of busy people.
0: Kirsty lets us in on why using a buyer's agent may cost you upfront, but can save you money and stress in the long run.
1: And I guess that buyer's agent uh, sector is still people are still grappling with that. Why would I pay someone to buy me a property? or do it myself. And yet, if they make a mistake, you know, to spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars on a buyer's agent, for example, which I think is pretty much the range, then it's a pretty small it's a pretty small fee for the amount of work that someone's going to do and um, and help you go on that right path, um, because in you know, so the other people don't, so they, they would pay a selling agent, which is what a real estate agent is. So in the US and uh, Europe, a real estate agent is called a selling agent because they're selling the property for you. They're not working for you, the buyer. Their job is to get the highest price for the vendor, not to get you the best price, right? So a lot of people go to the agent and try to get information and, but, you know, technically the agent should be working for who's paying him, which is he's you know, earning 2% or whatever it might be. the seller and so a buyer's agent in the us for example is very common i mean you have your every time at an auction or any negotiation the selling agent and the buyer's agent come together and they buy on behalf of us it's a very mature market so in australia you know hopefully there'll be some regulation brought into the sector as well to make it a bit stronger education wise obviously you have to have your real estate licenses and things but it'd be good to have that um that stronger regulation in the sector, which a lot of the associations are now trying to push for, which will, which will only benefit the sector as well and also grow its, uh, grow its um, popularity. And it's uh, people just understanding to why would I spend money on someone to buy a property, um, we can see it happening now and it's, it's good to be part of that, that movement. That people are. There's a lot of good people out there, podcasts like yourself on educating people and allowing us the opportunity to talk about our stories and what we do is, uh, also helps.
0: Mindset is key when it comes to strategy. And when it comes to using a buyer's agent as well.
1: It's a mindset thing, right? And also time. And if people are truly busy, a lot of people say, oh, I've got no time. But yet, they will spend half their day researching property. But what I also find, you know, mindset is very important for us on how we talk to our clients and educate them is um, they won't make the move. They will spend so many months and years analysing, analysing and paralysing themselves with the data that they won't actually make the move. And I had a good example of someone last year who, you know, the headline, what were the headlines last year? 30% property crash. Don't buy property. It's going to be a nightmare. It's going to be – so everyone panicked and said, I'm not going to buy property. So fair enough. And I, no one could, no one knew how bad COVID was going to get. And I accepted that. But a lot of people just said, you know, you guys are crazy. property's going to crash. Sell all your properties. Don't, don't hold on to them. And what's happened? It's gone the other way. Now they're believing the headlines, saying property's going to go up by 20%, right? So and everyone's an expert. Can we believe the, the newspapers? Um, but this particular client came back, said, I'm ready to get that deal. It was actually in the Sunshine Coast. Uh, really solid um, duplex deal with a really good we work with a lot of boutique uh, developers um, you know so you build it for 800 I think it was 820 and a nice big block of land and then you split it and you you take 100,000 easy like almost guaranteed 100,000 off the top once you split it and um, then you're still getting very positive cash flow as well so it's a very good strategy um, now they came back so ready to go I said okay that's about so now closer to 950, 960 well, what do you mean it was only 8 months ago I said yep it's uh, gone up a hundred thousand dollars just the land has gone up not the house obviously the house the cost the same to build so you know these things happen and they weren't wrong in their decision making process but this just that um you know where do you get your information from and sometimes is the daily telegraph headline correct or is it better to talk to people in the industry i'm not saying we're experts but there's a lot of people you can talk to um, to understand and yeah research is very really important
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's like how Warren Buffett says, you know, when the market's turning and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here is that, you know, that that's when there's a lot of fear in the market, that's when you want to go in. When there's a lot of greed and things are going up, that's when you want to run it as far away as possible.
1: And now, now the market's quite hot, right? So, we're, you know, yesterday, Luke, we're just doing due diligence on a deal today, which is off-market deal. Put it out to a client, he said grab it and so, we're going through it now, right? Going through the DD on it and... um but you don't get those deals in a hot market. So uh, a lot of people say, "I'll do it myself." But a real estate agent isn't going to call you because he knows you're not ready to do that. Whereas he can call not just us, but other buyers agents who have clients finance ready, ready to buy, and sell that property within a couple of days. They're going to take they're going to take that um, take that call. Um, now, maybe when the, when the market's soft, then that maybe the agents got a plenty of time on their hands. And have time to spend all day calling people up and giving you off market off information, but during these times you're not no no punter off the street is going to be able to build a relationship that we've built over many 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 years of working in the sector you know over a decade you're not going to build that lead by just calling up a couple of agents in a, in um, in Kingston in Brisbane and saying hey i'm a, I'm looking to buy a property. Can you tell when you' get an off market deal It's very rare they're going to call you.
0: He lets us in on how many properties are currently in his portfolio. And the current value they hold.
1: Um, so we currently have ten properties, including our family home. Um, uh, I actually actually even uh, added. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that question, <laughs> so I'd have to give go and let me do a quick calculation. Uh, so you know, I, I guess that's probably in the vicinity in terms of its value of that uh, would be around that six million mark of the the value of those properties. Um, in saying that, a lot of the all but a couple uh of the investment properties not my family home obviously there's, there's a mortgage on that but are all principal and interest so um sorry interest only i should say principal interest is the home and one other uh one other property but um they're all interest only and that's for obvious investment reasons why we do it that way so we are able to have some tax benefits from that as well particularly now um with the various sort of properties some are highly geared, higher geared and high positive cash flow than others and um you know, over a time when I was in the corporate world and I was paying 49% tax, I was able to get my tax rate to under 30%, which was done through some uh, you know, some smart use of, of property investment.
0: His strategy was initially based around wanting to find an alternative to the typical nine to five.
1: You know, you read a lot of books and the classical Robert Kawasaki books and all these things when you're young. And, you know, I grew up in a family where, as we discussed right at the outset, the parents had to, came with nothing, had to work hard, high interest rates, bought a property, paid it off, bought a property, paid it off. I mean, will we ever even pay a property off? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. I'm happy, you know, we've got our mortgages under control at home, but um, maybe we won't. But um, so I think it was more about just doing things a little bit different to the way it was. using our money wisely. Um, stock, I don't know what it was. Shares didn't just make sense to me. And maybe it goes back to why I didn't study accounting. Maybe my brain is it's not that well aligned to um, understanding the whole share market and algorithms and things like that. So property, it's obviously the tangibility of property, right? We can see it. I can touch it. I can feel it. Even though out of those nine properties I mentioned, uh, sorry, that one in Sydney I've seen, but the others I've never seen. I was driving through Brisbane with Luke uh, a few months back and I uh, I drove through Petrie, which got a couple of properties there. And um, I said, oh, we should go. On. I've got a couple of properties in this suburb. Just go have a look. And he said, okay. We started to turn the car around. He said, what are you going to do there? I'm like, actually nothing. I don't know. Like, I'm not going to knock on the door and say, hey, I'm the landlord. How are you? <laughs> we just turned around and kept going, right? So it's kind of funny. You you don't buy them because you want to, uh, you know, do the garden and, and, and mow the lawns for it. It's just, uh, it's you know, there's, there's some good out of Property investing, obviously, people get to who can't afford to buy get to rent and get roofs over their heads. So that's obviously an important factor why governments still stimulate this sector. Um, from a personal perspective, obviously, there is that leverage and that time in the market. So if you invest, and yes, we do go some ups and downs, and there were that eight-year period that everyone forgets about, conveniently, where Sydney didn't move, uh, Melbourne didn't move, and Brisbane didn't move, and you know they haven't all done it, luckily, at the same time, and that's why we want to diversify and have have uh, properties in different states and different cities and different areas and not just buy next door because, you know, that's where I grew up and I want to buy next door to my mom and dad. Um, We buy um, based on what we think and feel through research is a good long-term strategy. So if someone comes to someone in five years, it's a very different mindset strategy to someone who's who's, uh, the current client I've got who is um, in their 30s, you know, professional working for a firm, they can afford to go hard now and and then and then watch it grow over that 20-year period because they're not retiring anytime soon so um so i guess that's what the outlet set was to build a bit of a portfolio build and i think the word i use that probably you know when you're young people try to spruker you and talk about retire don't you want to retire at 45 don't you retire at 50 and maybe when you're yet you're 25 or 30 you probably think yeah that'd be great but I don't, I want to work forever. Like I love working. I love talking to people and helping people build a portfolio. So I'd love to keep working. So I don't have that mindset isn't in my mind or even my wife. She she works in a corporate firm, but she wants to work, you know, till she's 70 if she can, she said. So um, it was more about the word, I think it's one word for us is options. So give us options in life. And that option could be if you wanted to once the kids are done and dusted with school and maybe uni, I, I guess we won't get rid of them that soon <laughs> these days. Live with us for a while longer, especially when they get their breakfast made for them every morning. Um, so, yeah, you know, we have the options to travel. It could be an option to help our children if we if we can and decide to do that. It could be the option to, um, you know, from a charitable perspective as well. What options can we have there that help our community or other communities that we're involved in?
0: Yeah, I'm the same. I, I can't see myself retiring at all. I mean, I like the idea of having that and I like to be able to you know, maybe take off 12 months or something like that and take my kids traveling around the world, let them experience different cultures, do so many wonderful things but having that option to not worry about the finances and how we support ourselves to do those kind of things, that's what I love.
1: Yeah, I think we're I mean, going to look after our health and our mind and, and keep that healthy as well and then we can take make take advantage of those options right and uh, like you say yeah i love hiking and walking and you know i always would have a, i've done a few trips to nepal over the years as a younger guy but i'd love to do something like my wife and walk through the wine fields of france or Italy, and spain and do all these type of things so that'd be pretty fun so yeah right now it's uh working hard within balance obviously still ensuring we look after our health and um, our minds and our bodies and our families and then um when the time's right we can you know we still are lucky enough to have holidays and, and um spend some good quality time with the children and, and our friends, which is important.
0: While he doesn't necessarily have any mentors, Chris took a different, more DIY-style approach to his personal development.
1: I didn't have any official mentors, and I know that um, there are quite a few out there now which are coming through, which is quite good. In fact, Luke's doing quite a bit of mentoring to young people as well, as I mentioned. Um, I guess mine was more education, just immersing myself in the sector and, you know, the the classical seminars, um, reading books, my wife has always, particularly back in the day when podcasts started coming out, I was always had my earphones in my ears, like yourself, and uh, walk around the house. If I'm lawn mowing or gardening or cleaning the pool or doing whatever, exercising, I was always listening to property podcasts. And and back then there was only a few. Now there's I don't know, it must be fifty or sixty good ones to listen to. So yeah, I was just that was probably my education. Just and then books, you know, I've got a bookshelf here full of uh, property books and just reading, reading, reading with a long term view. I always, I always knew or felt deep, deep down that it was going to be my future. Um, I just didn't know when, right, because we get a little bit, uh, let's face it, that golden handcuffs of the corporate world um, locks us in for a little while. And then, you know, through certain circumstances, uh, for me it was a redundancy package through a company that um, I was working for, an American company, and uh, we uh, sold the business um, in the U.S., so we then had to, you know, Make some changes to the business in Australia, and had to, you know, unfortunately, have to let go of some people. And then once you do that and restructure the business, um, they kind of look at you and say, "Oh, thanks for that. (laughs) We might have run out of room for you at the top." So, uh, and these things happen, and it's it's happened a couple of times to me now. And you know, um, and. I see it happening to friends now as well. You're going to get into your late 40s and some friends into their 50s and um, it's, it happens and it's much harder to get those senior roles than you're at that age group. So in your 30s, you're bulletproof. You can never almost lose a job in your 30s. Um, um, so, yeah, I guess I started thinking about what is the next step? Am I going to be in the corporate world the rest of my life? And, you know, I, I guess I've always been entrepreneurial. I've worked for entrepreneurial companies, I've never worked for the big, the big, huge corporations. I've always been entrepreneurial sort of companies. Um, even when they were big, I worked for companies in the, in America and Switzerland that where I set up the business for them in Australia. So I like building things. So it always made sense to me I was going to do something. And I've tried a few different things and I tried to build a, a digital app business as well. Um, so I always knew that was going to be you know, property was going to be my thing and it kind of made sense from the, the data side of marketing that I always understood um, research and data and um, then, you know, I guess selling techniques and how to, how to talk to people. But I think a lot of it is just about um, the ethics and the integrity of the business.
0: So if you say you met yourself 10 years ago, what would you have said to him?
1: So probably don't get ahead of yourself. So 10 years ago, I was living in India. As I mentioned, we were doing really well and probably the bright lights maybe got into my eyes a bit. My, my wife would probably say the same thing. So I think I would say to myself back then, just don't get ahead of yourself. Remember the, you know, the grounding of your life and the, the lessons you've learned through your family and you've, and the people you, you, you know, hang out with, as we say, whether some of the people we are, the five people we are closest to, and just remember those things. And I mentioned that India was a changing um had a big change for my mindset in life and because you know we we did luckily pick up that lesson there to say uh you know we're very lucky to see what we have in this country and uh you know i'm in a country where there are people sitting uh living on the street downstairs of the big you know apartment block that i live in and they're the happiest people i see every single day and a lot of people who are earning lots of money and living in these big jobs that we had were quite stressed and miserable and um so, I guess that was a real turning point. So, I think that's what I would say, just uh, take a deep breath, be grounded and be grateful. Mm.
0: Where do you see yourself and, I guess, your family and, and what you're currently doing in the next, say, five years?
1: You know, my girls will be in five years' time, nine, two, yeah, will finish high school by then, both of them. Uh, so, that'd be great because they are in private schools. So, that'll help our bank balance a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'd see them, you know, potentially being at university or doing something like that, pro- probably living with us, hopefully living with us, even though sometimes we love them too, <laughs> to be elsewhere. Um, and I think I think probably doing the similar things in terms of loving our jobs. Both my wife and I love what we do. Um, you know, I'd hope in five years' time our business would be in, a, in, a, in, a, in another phase of where it is at the moment, where we could probably give back a little bit more, um, employ some people to, you know, build their careers um the main thing is to stay fit and healthy uh you know it's something we really work hard on as a family and uh um, but it's not just your body it's your mind as well so uh, luke and i both volunteer at lifeline at the at the calls crisis suicide look call center um so we obviously are trained um on how to talk to people through through that process so i think it's important for us to um you know look at look at that as well as um let's probably see myself you know doing maybe some more hours there as well um um as well as what we're what we're currently doing in our business and in our family
0: so julian you've achieved a lot of great success out of your whole journey and i'm really really you know appreciate that you shared such a great journey how much of that has been due to success your, your success due to your intelligence hard work and skill and how much of it do you think is because of luck
1: i'm a big believer in you make your own luck and uh I think you have to put in the hard yards. Oh, intelligent, yeah. I don't. I don't think I'm overly intelligent, you know, in the classical sense. But uh, you know, I think I'm pretty learned. I think I read a lot. I I say to people I have a lot of common sense, and sometimes that's not all that common. And I've noticed that in the um, in the corporate world, um, particularly where sometimes common sense wasn't all that common in uh, some of the highly. Uh, um you know higher when I started going sort of into higher, higher positions and uh, sort of senior executive and management roles um yeah I think a lot of it is hard work and perseverance uh, getting up and you get knocked down and not um you know crying over spilt milk so to speak unfortunately we sometimes have to dust ourselves off and maybe hide in the corner for a day or two but um you realize that um you've just got to you've just got to keep going and keep strong um and if you keep putting in and, and keep doing the right things and holding on to your integrity and doing the right things, I mean I've been around a lot of and I've seen a lot of um, unethical behaviours in business um, and I kind of just tried to focus on what I what I, I guess the morals that I was brought up with and uh, what I like to, to live in life and um, I think eventually you start to get repaid. And sometimes, yeah, I, I, there are some people out there I know very much they're doing some really bad things in the property sector potentially, particularly, um, and they're still growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, you can worry about them and get jealous and why are they driving uh, fancy cars and living on the water in $5 million homes, or you can just focus on what you can do and control the controller, which is what I do and what I do for my clients' community and in our business, you know, and ensuring that our um, our value systems in our business align with our personal values as well.
0: Great um i guess how much of it do you think it was because of luck though i'll
1: have to say there is a lot of luck because sometimes how do you get into that certain how does that come to you how does that person come to you into your life out of nowhere how do you bump into someone on a plane which has happened to me and next thing you have a chat and and that happened is that luck yeah i guess that's luck is it coincidence is it uh you yeah. know, is it was it always meant to happen was it always the path you were meant to go down you know i, I love uh, a book called the alchemist uh a Spanish author I don't know if you've read that one Paolo Coelho uh, yeah, there's a lot about a lot about that right whether you get what you're destined for and whether you can create your own destiny whether it just it happens and um, so I'm a big believer I guess as I've got older as well sometimes it comes by experience I probably use the, the word luck a lot more and think oh that person's lucky they're really lucky they got that they're lucky they got that job but I guess um, I believe if you you know put in the hard work um, luck will come your way as well
0: Thank you to Julian Kusagara, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.